Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Michael Leader. I'm David Jenkins. And I'm Elena Lezik. And today we'll be talking about John M. Chu's big screen adaptation of Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights and Ben Wheatley's pandemic folk horror In the Earth. We'll also get the inside track on In the Earth from actor Reese Shearsmith and in Film Club with Monster Hunter in cinemas, we're reanimating Paul W.S. Anderson's zombie action sequel, Resident Evil Retribution. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, welcome back listeners and welcome back David, always a pleasure. Good to see you. And Eleanor, it's been a while. I know. I've, How have you been? I've missed you all. Yeah, I've been great. I mean, I've been at home already, starting to go back outside. I've been to the cinema a couple of times, so can't complain. Mm-hmm. So we're using this revamp of Truth and Movies as a way of reintroducing all of our regular guests to the great wide world. So can you tell us who are you? What do you do? <laughs> what have you been up to recently? Uh, so yeah, I'm a freelance uh, film critic. Uh, I'm French, in case you couldn't hear that. Um, and yeah, I actually uh, used, I mean, I didn't use this pandemic to do this, but the pandemic sort of prompted me to finally do something I've been wanting to do for a while, which is launch my own film magazine. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's an online film magazine and, uh, yeah, it launched like, uh, last week, I think, maybe, <laughs> I think it was last week. Yes. Uh, but I've been basically working on it or at least thinking about it for the whole, you know, the whole pandemic. So it's been pretty intense, kept me busy. Um, uh, but yeah, it's doing really well. It's called Animus. Mm-hmm. And that's online. We can check it out. Writing by Charles Romesco, Sophie Kaufman, yeah. people whose voices may be familiar mm-hmm. to listeners. Only the best. And what's the website for that? Uh, it's called, I mean, the website is um, animusmagazine.com. So later on, we're talking about Resident Evil Retribution with a bit of a video game spin. I must ask, this is a nerdy question. Animus, of course, is in the Assassin's Creed games and the film <laughs> of the games. <laughs> yes, any, uh, uh, any influence there? Um, I mean, I have actually seen the um, Assassin's Creed film. I have not played the games. I really want to, actually. Uh, but no, it doesn't really come from that. I saw also that Animus is something in Doctor Who as well, I was informed. Uh, but no, it just comes from the Latin word Animus, which I guess is also where it comes from for Doctor Who and Assassin's Creed. But I mean, um, I mean, if, if, if people can like relate to it in that way too, it's, it's not a problem, you know. <laughs> if, if they come across yeah. it thinking it's, a, it's like Assassin's Creed fandom, but then find a load of awesome film <laughs> criticism, that's, not, that's no bad thing, really. 
Exactly. I like to think there's probably, you know, um, a Venn diagram of people who like both things, you know. <laughs> yeah. So lots more video game related chat later in the episode. This is a packed episode. We have the usual two new releases in Film Club, but also an interview with Reese Shearsmith. So stay tuned for that if you're a fan of him and his work. But we should kick things off on a high with In the Heights. So John M. Chu, director of Crazy Rich Asians, adapts the hit musical from Lin-Manuel Miranda that centres on the New York neighbourhood of Washington Heights, where a kaleidoscope of dreams rallies the vibrant and tight-knit community. At the intersection of it all is the likeable, magnetic bodega owner Uznavi, played by Anthony Ramos, who saves every penny from his daily grind as he hopes, imagines and sings about a better life. David, what better way to welcome the reopening of cinemas than with a big, big musical? Am I right or am I wrong? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the talk around this film has has kind of harked back to this I, this almost post-war ideal of like, you know, it, after this after this lengthy period of of of, uh, of of kind of boredom and awfulness and and having to sort of isolate and be away from human contact that you know that the the the, the mu- movie musical is returning to its kind of primal form as the kind of the thing that 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 brings communities together and makes it and, and reminds us of the joy of life again and uh you you definitely can kind of feel that like that was part of the impetus of of getting this film out right now as 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 the kind of the, the 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 restrictions are being drawn back and people are able to kind of interact with the world once more it is like i mean sugar high doesn't quite touch it i mean it's sort of like you know toxic tartrazine <laughs> full, full body blood transfusion style like it's uh it's very 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 kind of it's put it, it's it's putting joy right right into your face so and i don't i i definitely <laughs> don't mean that in a kind of negative way um it's so yeah it's the story of 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 a uh dominican immigrant in uh new york's washington heights and he is our kind of narrator it's called uznavi uh and he's played re- really well by um anthony ramos who is get already getting a lot of talk about kind of rewards and you know uh, destined for great things and essentially it's his kind of there are a few little kind of things in there it's there is the uh it's set around the time of of the new york blackout which was a kind of thing that that sort of brought communities together in this sort of strange way but also there's a countdown to his 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 decision to leave uh leave new york um return back to the dominican republic and and start a bar restart his father's bar that was destroyed in a in a, in a in a in a storm and um and yeah it's 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 very very kind of you know it's very kind of musically it's very it's sort of it it lin-manuel miranda who who kind of wrote the original stage version you can tell that he is a deep scholar of the kind of structure and emotional beats of the musical because like it kind of hits every single one absolutely bang on. I mean, it's, you know, you, you kind of, you get the big opening number, then you get a kind of the sort of funny number following that where you, where you introduce all the side players. And then you get the, the sort of like the questioning number of pe- people like, 
being sort of like anxiety anxious about their lives and then you have the kind of sad number and then you have it all coming back together again so it kind of it's very it's very formulaic in that way but again i don't that's not necessarily a negative thing um um yeah so that this is actually my first taste of 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 of, of, of anything lin-manuel miranda based uh and mm. i was i was a little nervous about that because i'm not necessarily uh yeah the the, the i don't think hamilton nec- from what i know about what hamilton is it doesn't it you know it's like i'm happy that people love hamilton but it didn't necessarily appeal to me but yeah have, have, have any of you guys seen hamilton and and it'd be interesting to know how it compares to this i've 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 seen the filmed stage version that went up on disney plus last year almost as a stopgap until i'm sure eventually they turn it into a film and yeah it, it's very lin-manuel miranda and anyone who's also heard the music he's done for disney um properties like moana he has a very specific rhythm um of of, of delivery the interesting thing here is that he played as navi he originated that role on broadway and i couldn't re- can't really see lin-manuel you know charming as much as as anthony ramos does um eleanor were you charmed by this it definitely is industrial grade musical <laughs> um and i i mean i'm glad if people like it obviously that's their choice um i did not really enjoy um uh, in the heights um i didn't hate it or anything i was kind of expecting to find it absolutely unbearable or something because i i've been i was once uh almost like forced to listen to all of Hamilton you know without the images just the CD and I, I was I thought I was you know dissociating I just thought it was really horrible I didn't like it at all uh, but I mean I didn't like <laughs> if I, I'm sure if I like sat in a room and tried to actually listen to it on my own maybe I would you know develop more of a you know appreciation for it but not in that situation uh, so I was expecting to not like it at all and I did like it quite a bit and especially what I liked most about In the Heights was really um, the choreography and stuff. Whenever there were loads of people dancing and stuff, I was like, yes, this is why I love... This is, this is not why I love musicals, but this is what some one of the things that I really, really think is amazing about musicals, you know, and you get swept away and it's, everybody's doing the same thing at the same time. <laughs> you know? uh, but I, what really, what kind of I found quite grating is that there's, it's a musical that's almost entirely sung through, but there's too much talking because the talking is sung through and, and it's just people saying things mm-hmm. at, and like making a little sick song about them. And I have nothing against the, it's, I, I don't say that out of like a sort of, you know, uh, sort of, uh, oh, the purity of the musical, the musical should just be about songs and not about people saying things, whatever. Like, I don't, that's not the point. The point is that I found it quite exhausting to try to keep up with what they were saying about, because it advanced the story every time and advanced, you know, the character characterization. And I just found it quite exhausting to listen. And, you know, they, they sing in, that, in this obviously cadenced way because that's what singing is. But at the same time, you're trying to understand what, they, what they're saying. And it, it was just a bit much for me. And also the film is, I mean, I have nothing against, I think musicals are supposed to be long. So I, I, I wasn't surprised about that. But it's just this for two and a half hours was like quite a lot for me. Um, and yeah, I just, I just mm-hmm. find it a bit like there, there were no songs to me that I found really catchy or that you can, I can even remember because all the songs were just sa- people saying, this is, this is who I am. This is what I want. This is what I dream of, but this happened, but and, you know, just the story. And I just, it was just too much for me. Like, I, I don't, I don't find that 
entertaining or pretty to listen to. It's true. And I think it's a Lin-Manuel Manuel Miranda trait. He's so lyrically and melodically dexterous as well. So he likes to really pack his songs with lots and lots of words and dialogue and overlapping voices. So particularly in like the first half hour where they're doing a lot of setup, like, you know, we do have Aznavi as our central character, but it, it does fan out with quite an ensemble with all their own hopes and dreams and their own backgrounds and their own family dramas and their, and, and so on. So it can be quite a lot to take on board, particularly if you're, you know, out of shape as I am in terms of <laughs> musicals. I, I, t- I tend to have a feeling maybe 10 minutes into a musical of intense claustrophobia thinking, oh gosh, I'm in this for two and a half hours and they're going to be singing at me. <laughs> I've been cornered by this musical. But I, I think there is considerable um, sort of charm a bit behind it as well. D- David, in the adaptation, John M. Chu is known as quite a big, flashy, glossy director. Do you think he brings much to this film? Well, I, I, I think it's interesting, actually, because I think John M. Chu is probably like if push comes to shove probably like would would be considered one of the 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 best modern musical directors um his his step up films that he did step up Two, Mm. step up um 3d are really great like they're properly brilliant films and and you can and and this this almost feels like a kind of cross this almost feels like a merging of the step the sort of the the the, choreo, the choreographic and sort of filming side of the step up films with the kind of um, almost soap opera drama of of, of Crazy Rich Asians. Um, so so yeah, I think he does it that well. And I think that it's for me, it's it was it's kind of yeah, slightly slightly hit and miss. Like some of it just feels very kind of music video y, like. It, it it just sort of feels like extended music video style sometimes and and like i felt that some of the some of the the, the sort of big dance set pieces like the 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 one set in the uh the the the, the um the the lido the, the outdoor pool it was it was a really fun uh, number but like it just it it didn't really have it didn't really have any structure to it. It was just like oh let's get them to do this thing over here and then we'll move the camera and then someone else can be doing another thing and it it didn't feel, it just felt like a little moments that had been stitched together rather than like a number that had a structure to it. Whereas mm-hmm. conversely, I thought that I thought the highlight of the film for me was the the kind of um, I'm trying to say this without spoilering, but there's there's a an, a kind of elder sage character called. Claudia, uh, who is kind of um, who uh, uh, um, who who kind of looks after Uznavi, who who is who is his kind of spirit guide, and she is the sort of spirit guide for the community as well. Um, She's a bit like in 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 uh, in do the right in Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, which I think a lot of people have compared this to sort of structurally. She's like the kind of mother sister character, kind of you know. Mm overseeing her neighborhood and then she 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 has a she has a kind of big number in the middle of the film and it's amazing i think i it's a really it's the one number that i think is actually kind of structured really original does some really unique things with the camera with the with the music with the editing with the choreography and 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 it's really moving i thought so like i i kind of like you know like there is that thing in classic musicals where you you have the 
I think I think sort of touching on what Elena was saying before, there's a there's more of a delineation between like here's the kind of drama part where we're going to see the the intrigues playing out and people talking, and then here's the and then we're just going to hard cut into a musical number or or like fast you know fast fade into a musical number. So there's quite a delineation between them. Whereas this is more that it's got that kind of operetta feel where you know everything is kind of half sung and hip operetta I think is the is the technical term but like um yeah um I, I think that yeah it, it it that that number felt like a really nice sort of standalone musical classical musical segment whereas like some of the others just felt a little bit more kind of music video like we're just going to segue into a music video and and then we're going to go back out again and carry on with the story yeah you're touching on something there that 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 that, that intrigued me about this as well i have a feeling that in in the heights would have into on a level of stagecraft would have been something to see in the theater particularly you know as you say it's centered around this blackout sequence which i can imagine in the closed box of a theater could be used really well in terms of using darkness and characters bring their own light sources and everything whereas when it's a film and it's just more of more dancing but this time in half darkness it it doesn't really have the that sense of vision maybe behind it and the sort of low point for me is one where they do try and use some film trickery where a dance sequence between two characters has them dancing up the side of a building with a beautiful skyline as they talk about the New York skyline. Um, it just feels like we've got to do something here that we couldn't do on stage, when really sometimes you can't beat what can be done on mm-hmm. stage. And that's a, a question I'm sure that's hanging over the Hamilton musical, something that has been so excellent and so um, successful on stage. How would you adapt that? Um, Eleanor, on the basis of In the Heights and your experience being forced to listen to Hamilton, would you be paying to see that film? Um, I mean, y- yes, I, I guess I'm, I don't like regret seeing it, obviously, like I, I, uh, I'd recommend seeing every movie. But I think this one is like you you can have a really good time watching In the Heights. Like I, it's just I don't know. It's just I found it a bit exhausting after a while, but maybe not everybody will feel that way. I don't know. I think it's definitely interesting. And uh, I mean, it's definitely refreshing to see, uh, you know, people, uh, Latino people and other people from Washington Heights actually on screen. Like I I don't necessarily know, you know, their their history, their stories and stuff. And not that, not that, uh, cinema is has to be used for this to this purpose but it is refreshing and it is uh, kind of interesting and to find out about the neighborhood because i I'm, i don't know anything about it um so yeah i would recommend seeing it yeah definitely hmm. should, we, should we put some scores on this to wrap things up so david let's go for um in anticipation enjoyment in retrospect i'm probably gonna say um uh threes across the board um because i i i I, again i was a bit like i i couldn't i I don't i didn't have any kind of take on lin-manuel beforehand um so i didn't i didn't you know i was coming it quite sort of naked in that sense um then in just enjoyment yeah I, i thought i thought it was very like an enjoyable romp that kind of thing you know um and yeah, to, to echo Elena, I thought I think maybe it, it has that extra element, layer of interest in that, you know, you are it is a there there is a more kind of ethnically like diverse story, and you know you're actually kind of 
looking into a kind of cultural enclave, even though slightly a slightly kind of rose tinted one. But but the fact that you know it's it's kind of rare to have like big big musicals with like car you know full casting fully of like you know Latino people and um, to represent a Latino community because I mean musicals in particular you know I think are, are quite sort of naughty for using for sort of having uh, you know white white people play Chinese people or, or things like that you know so so this this was it was really interesting to see this although this has spawned a, a big kind of cultural debate about mm. about representation and and how it maybe didn't go far enough which is kind of online at the moment and actually Lin-Manuel Miranda himself has written a kind of online apology about not having taken that casting process to a to a to of a level that actually shows the community in an even truer light looking at kind of afro-latin um uh community as well um and yeah three i, I mean it's the sort of thing that i would sort of yeah i, I would probably i i wouldn't be rushing to watch again but i think it's you know it, I, you know if it came if it came on in a plane and it was the only option i, I wouldn't close my eyes <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we should say that that online discourse is really fascinating and um, always interesting to read how something that's been positioned by a major studio as a great win for representation um, does still uh, in- inspire even you know even even more conversation. And there's something about Lin Manuel Miranda, both this and Hamilton, are being talked of as very Obama era in terms of their themes and the the. The, the vision of the world they're putting forward and it's a conversation to have you know are they even 10 15 years on from premiere out of date but Eleanor what, what are your scores for In the Heights? Uh, me um, I would say maybe two three two so Anticipation two because I of my scaring Hamilton experience uh, Enjoyment three because I did get swept up in it quite a bit um, um, especially the charm of the lead actor um, but also Corey Hawkins, who plays his best friend, um, who I think he's uh, really, really charming. Mm-hmm. I thought he was maybe the highlight of the film. Um, and then two, because in retrospect, I just, uh, like, I don't remember much of it. And it didn't leave that much of an impression. And it hasn't really changed my opinion of uh, what Lin-Manuel Miranda is doing as art. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't find it that interesting um yeah but I, I think it's interesting what you were saying about the representation discourse because i feel like this is Lin-Manuel Miranda himself positions himself as the man who does perfect representation and so i think it's totally fair that people respond actually no you know so i think it's interesting that that he that people are willing to still criticize his work in that way and i think it's really productive and fruitful so yeah and hopefully, you know, unfortunately, this film has underperformed in the States, but all, 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 all also the very notion of expecting a film like this to mm. overperform, given the pandemic that's still out there, people still return to cinemas. I think the predictions might have been quite high. Hopefully, this is just another step in, in a long road rather than Warner Brothers now saying, well, we're not going to do any more of that. Oh, yeah. See how it went down on Twitter. Mm. But uh, it is all part of a very productive and constructive ongoing conversation. Um, but yeah, for me, I, I'm not a huge musicals fan, so um, take take these uh, scores as you will. But it's yeah, threes across the board for me. Really, it's not without its pleasures, but I, I wasn't humming any of the songs the next day. I just want to add for anyone out there who's a fan of the musical Rent, 
that there are quite a few references to rent in this musical. Uh, they're not all very nice to rent, so I would recommend all rent heads to check it out and see for themselves. Just to just to add, <laughs> Elena is a rent head, but maybe that's that's a subject for another podcast. Maybe <laughs> yes, that would that would take quite a while to talk about. <laughs> so, listeners, any rent heads out there? If you do see in the Heights, let us know what you make of uh, of of in the Heights response to rents. Uh, it's in cinemas this weekend, but we're going to go from the giddy heights of In the Heights down to the mud and the soil of In the Earth. So, In the Earth. As the world searches for a cure to a disastrous virus, a scientist and park scout venture deep into the forest for a routine equipment run. Through the night, their journey becomes a terrifying voyage through the heart of darkness, the forest coming to life around them. Before we talk about In the Earth, we were very privileged to have some time with actor Reese Shearsmith talking about working with Ben Wheatley, about working on In the Earth under pandemic uh, circumstances, as well as talking a little bit about Inside Number Nine. Let's have a listen. Reese Shearsmith, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's such a pleasure to welcome you onto Truth and Movies. Congratulations thank on uh, In the Earth, but also the new series of Inside Number Nine. Um, so much uh, great stuff out there at the moment with you, Ian. Thank you. That's uh, very kind. Thanks. Yeah, I'm glad you're enjoying it. <laughs> so let's start with um, with the film. Um, this is your third big screen collaboration with Ben Wheatley, and which puts you really firmly in that returning troupe of collaborators. Um, it's such a fun part of following Ben Wheatley's career over the years, seeing the same people on screen, the same names behind the screen. Um, and that's, but that's from a fan's perspective. From an actor's perspective, what is it you enjoy about working with Ben that brings you back? Um, I think we really hit it off. Um, you know, when we first met Ben, uh, I, I saw down terrace on a as a screening and then uh, i didn't really meet him then i just said well done at the end and then there was a few months went by and then i think we somehow got a meeting together i think he requested meeting me we just to have a chat about just i think to see if we connected and we sort of did and we didn't really nothing happened from that meeting but I, then a year later i got the script for a whitehead for feel in england mm -hmm. and i think that was that had been the results of meeting me that first time and just sort of sounding me out as a person but we have all the same sensibilities and I think he's a great you know he's a, he, he, there are areas of that he knows about that I've not ever seen and he'll suggest films and I'll go down an avenue with him of stuff that I've never seen and and, and same with me I'll say yeah, have you seen this and he'll go and seek it out and we, we sort of swap yeah. um, recommendations and that's always a great you know it's great when you find someone who's judgment you trust because how many hours of you of your life have you got left trying things out that you're not going to like so that's why i think about box sets i think i can't commit to this i don't know when i'm going to die so i <laughs> don't bother watching them but so uh, yeah so ben was great we hit it up very well and he's i think he, the, his films always have something in them that a lot of films rarely ever capture and he always seems to capture violence real violence very well and and when he took me to see Kill List, he didn't give me any indication of what it was. And I watched it in a small screening room. And I just looked at him at the end and I remember saying, why did you make that? <laughs> it was, it was, I had the Kill List look at the end of this absolute horror of this thing that he'd, he'd done. And, I, and it was so powerful. 
and it made you feel something. And you know, oftentimes you never really feel anything. You've tried to rack your brains as to what film you saw the night before, <laughs> oftentimes. But with Ben, he's very you you don't have that feeling. I think you'll you'll you have an experience and it stays with you and you it percolates and you think about it. And this seemed like it would do the same thing again. And I was very excited to work with him under the most extraordinary situation with in the middle of the lockdown where it was like, I don't really believe you. He told me in April he was writing a horror and there was a part for me. And I thought, well, that's nice, but we, we won't, that won't really happen. That's, we're never, never going out the house again. And then suddenly in, in August, it really was. And we were, I never really dared believe it was going to happen, but we were the first, I think, one of the first people to creep out into the woods and, and film it. Yeah. And it was like 25 of us in in um, Henley, in the middle of the woods, all tested and all living in this hotel. There was only the crew, no one else was there. So it felt the safest it could be. And it was a real triumphant um, experience to be back filming and think it is possible we can do it it was a ray of hope you know <laughs> absolutely it was so exciting to hear that it was going was underway when the news yeah. first leaked out but i suppose you say you say this was extraordinary circumstances for in the earth but in, in a way all three of the films you've made with ben have been somewhat extraordinary field in england was an experimental thing like it was going out like a troop into the into the field creating that on a yeah. relatively small budget um high rise was his first kind of larger budgeted film i suppose coming off the back of the, the, those yeah. earlier small budget one and now back again you're in a field <laughs> on, a, on a more restricted yeah. budget is there a was there a, f a familiarity there or had, had things changed over the years when you went back to work with them oh i think it, yeah we slipped back very much into uh the way we the way he works he's quite mysterious he doesn't really ever give you um a massive clarification about what if you're puzzled about where the what the story means or what someone's trajectory is, you know, I think he'll leave, he'll give you a few little clues, but he won't fully flesh it out because I think he wants, I think he likes the, that there's an obliqueness to it and you're not sure yourself in a way, in a weird way. I sort of constructed a, a version as to why Zach is the way he is. And I think, and I think it chimed with what Ben was getting at, which was this, the, the notion of how the human animal needs to tell itself stories to explain this world and Zach's done this he's gone off grid that is to flee from this terrible plague-like pandemic and the his circumstances have become so extreme and but and yet he's been so isolated that he's he's constructed a almost a, a, um, a comfort in this sort of religious fervor that he has for nature and this bigger bigger thing than him and the film then of course becomes about that side of explaining everything to that's the science version, you know, and we, and we get a film that ends up in two halves in a way. It's the sort of, I'm the Texas Chainsaw bit. And then there's, there's a Quatermass bit. Yeah. It was very sort of scientific and there's a lot of exposition about how it's happening, but it's all, you know, it, it, they're all mad. It's all mad. That's the <laughs> mad thing about it. And I think Ben really wanted to exp explore that. But being back with him was great. He lets you try different things as an actor. He'll tell you to take it down. He'll tell you to be, you can be bigger here. And he doesn't give you much uh, in performance, but he will. What he will say is just then will really steer the way you want to do it. I, I very early on wanted to play Zach very um, calmly mm. and um, reasonably. You know, I thought that was a more frightening route to take than be so mad that he, he's just sort of it's the law of diminishing returns. And I just thought if there's someone so sure of and um, convincing 
and plausible in his in whatever he's saying, however mad it is, that's more frightening to be on the receiving end of it because you, you you get the feeling that he's not going to change his mind, and that's what's frightening about that kind of person because you think I can't persuade them with reason, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A, and yet there's an absolute sort of steely calm under all of it. Yeah, and Ben wanted that kind of I think wanted that House of Zach. Yeah, it's it's, it's a terrific performance for people who've followed your career particularly within the Ben Wheatley films where um, uh, Whitehead in Field in England is very much our protagonist although does have the moment there's a particular facial expression you pull towards the end of that film which is uh, etched yeah. on the inside of my brain <laughs> we'll never forget and then in yeah. High Rise you, you're, you're, you're part of the ensemble of, of the, the people who live in the building there but you do have your mad moments so there's almost this yeah. thread of madness through all of the characters you played with Ben but almost the the balance, the shifts of that madness and how it's presented in, in facial expressions is, is what's different. And that's what, you know, when I was thinking about um, your acting and also the, you know, your colleagues at Inside Number Nine and League of Gentlemen yeah. and so on, is that there is such an elasticity to your performances. You can, week in, week out, between the anthology episodes of Inside Number Nine, just present a completely different face, literally. And it's... Yeah, uh, well, that's... Thank you, yeah. I mean, I think I sometimes think it's it sort of goes unnoticed and and we're quite anonymous in that. In that and, in that, and that only means, I think, that we're doing a good job, but... I don't know that it's recognised. It's nice when anyone ever says it because it feels like, yeah, we that is a sort of um, achievement now, especially with however many episodes we've done of number nine. It's like, how, what on earth, how, what other facet of myself can I present? But certainly the degrees of, of um, characters that I've played with Ben have always, have, yeah, Whitehead was a, a coward, an absolutely sort of snivelling, honourable man, but very um, thrust into a situation that he was sort of the Joel Fry of mm -hmm. that, of, Field in England, uh, of, yeah, of Field in England, uh, thrust into a world where he didn't, didn't, he was out of his depth and bumbling his way through this woods with these people that could do it better than him. And Zach is the absolute opposite. He's like, he's one with nature and uh, is uh, able to completely fend for himself in the throes of uh, whatever that woods throws at him. He's, he's managed however much it snapped his brain into being able to live alongside him. Mm. You talked about the commonality of interest that you shared with Ben when you first met him. Um, and yeah. I, I wonder what, what that was, because um, some, you know, Ben's films can be quite eclectic, but still have these couple of qualities at the heart. He loves his blend of horror and comedy. He does like to look at some of the sinister underpinnings behind the, the idyllic British life or the uh, utopian British yes. life. And is that where you cross over, or is it something a bit more like genre-wise, like folk horror? Yeah, no, I mean, we never, I don't even think it was an, um, a phrase when we did Field in England, maybe it just about was folk horror, but uh, certainly some of the big sort of Mount Everest of the films that we like, like Wicker Man and Witchfinder General and Blood on Satan's Claw are all things that we connected with and they're all folk, folk horror. And it's great that I've ended up sort of doing two modern ones with Ben. He's, I, th I don't know whether by accident or design sort of done three now hasn't it with um kill list as well being one so it was it was interesting that that's a trajectory he's took i don't know whether it's absolutely folk horror that he's mining i think it's just the it's possibly the extremes of of where it takes you with uh, when you're when you are outside there is an a weird elemental old unknowable feeling about when you 
in the woods and using nature and it just gives you a sense of something bigger than you that's 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 there and frightening regardless of how you might want to film it in or, or, or mangle it to your story i think you've got that it just feels it's it's the same feeling you have when you go into church mm. there is an awe to it that's slightly dreadful and uh, and it makes you feel small and you feel like you there's a reverence to it and it's the, and that is what you feel when you're grappling with nature i think and i think he tried he's ex, he's ex, gone part way to sort of examine that as a as, as the human animal and how you um how you deal with that when it is frightening he's always talked about how he was scared of the woods when he was little and it's it's and he, he's very particular about what he thinks is frightening to people and he manages to capture it, i think very well on in film because oh, you watch most horror films and there i'm maybe i'm impervious having watched them since i was far too young to watch them but the the mechanics and the tropes and the the feeling you know someone walking down a corridor in a horror film looking scared because it's dark in the corner is you watch it you're not really frightened i'm not frightened particularly but when it's suddenly someone and they wake up in the middle of the night they think they hear a creak on the stairs and it might be a burglar suddenly there's a, it feels a lot more closer to home and that is becomes really scary and i think he manages to do i don't know whether it's always by connecting in some sort of very real way he manages to make you feel uncomfortable in a way that a lot of films don't and i think that's that's a real skill in not only thinking of it but then also managing to somehow film it and it come across all the very you know what you've got to realize about filming is it doesn't just happen by accident every single bit of it is thought about you know and it's very carefully crafted and when if you can capture something because you know in your mind what it is that's going to be scary and the, the, oh, this bit is going to be frightening because I'm not going to go close on that image that person in the background I'm going to keep very far away from it so you can't make it out that's more chilling than being able to be to go close up and see it you know they did them brilliantly in the um, ghost stories for Christmas on the BBC always the most terrifying things and yet very simply filmed a lot of them but just it was I think it was just an a real understanding of what is frightening about those particular M.R. James stories. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's, they've been bettered as far as mm -hmm. like moments of horror where you think, why is that so horrible? And it's just some sort of um, capturing of, of, a, of, a, of a feeling that you, I think if you, if you saw it in real life, it would really chill you to the bone. Mm -hmm. And so being on that journey with Ben and trying to explore that and, um, have dialogues about that and what would be frightening at this point and what would be funny at this point and what, what let's the scene in uh, in the earth when i'm helping um martin with his poorly foot um was very is, is very much comedically uh, as far as it has was constructed there was very much a rhythm to it that was like a telling a joke mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it felt like when we knew that and we would we very much rehearsed and worked out what the best rhythm for it was as a, as far as a as as the most sort of hard hitting gag relief horror moment so that 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 fine line of comedy and horror being like the the, the setup of a gag and then the release of a laugh was very carefully used in that moment you know and that was a very late addition to the script actually that whole scene oh really right and and what was it like i guess in that scene you were playing with one of dan martin's great 
prosthetic creations yes. there, which is another joy of Ben Whitley's movies, even if it's going to be a relatively grounded film. There's going to be some eye gouging or uh, scars yeah. or something. He refound his love of, of in-camera horror in this film. Yeah, there was a lot of real um, brilliant creations from Dan that, Again, it was so thrilling to see because they were turned upon set and I thought he must have started making these a long time ago. It wasn't thrown together, you know. Yeah. But yeah, fantastic to work with that and, and have it in camera and yeah. so, capturing all that stuff. So you said that um, so Ben's scared of the great outdoors and uh, you said you're, you're quite impervious to horror because you're watching it from quite a young age. But what were you scared of as a kid? Oh, I think truly scared of um, parents dying. Mm. Uh, robbers, um, illness, you know, all the things that you increasingly get scared of as you get older. I'm very mortal now. I'm very, I'm very squeamish now. I don't like all these body horrors, saw films mm. and all that. I can't take it. Uh, having just done one with this film, but uh, yeah, I'm very sort of, uh, I, I don't really, I'm not one of the um, sort of fright fest ones that cheer on at the, uh, the heads rolling. I find it better to do um, more interesting to have the more psychological horror that stays with you i mean kill list was a bit of both i suppose but that was just something else because of the, of the child at the end that was what got me about that Absolutely. but uh, yes it was um i think uh, but then and having said that when i was young i was watching the double bill of horror on bbc2 and there was a, a universal and then there was an amicus or a or a hammer at one in the morning mm -hmm. and i would suddenly be scared of the foxes howling because i just watched Oliver Reed as a werewolf, and that that equally was absolutely terrifying to me. Yeah. As was Freaks, and as was um, the old Dark House, because mm -hmm. you know, or, or even um, Phantom of the Opera, one in the morning at the start of an Easter holiday, mm -hmm. watching that grainy, frightening-looking man, and the oldest. Um, but I was fascinated by it. I was scared, thrilled, and intrigued, and wanted to know more. And I bought the Alan Frank book, and I just it became a real. Um, lifelong passion and, and being able to still sort of be dabbling in it myself and basically sort of remaking all my favorite bits in, in whatever guise has been a real thrill i'm never i never take it for granted that i'm sort of doing the best job in the world mm. I, I just recently found the alan frank horror book really um, yeah in, in a in a charity shop near me great oh, great, great find because it's, it's the other one is the dennis gifford book as well that was that's great oh right I've, I've i've got dennis gifford's um comics book but i've not got his right. um yeah, yeah, his british comics book, book but not his horror book so it's, uh, i suppose i had a bit of an epiphany halfway through in the earth as most people probably do watching it but uh maybe not the one that's intended which is um the way that ben and actually this is this ties in with inside number nine and everything you've done the way that you play with established genres and traditions can almost be this mind expanding opening moment for people who may have not been exposed to those films before you know from i don't know uh, uh hitchcock to um to folk horror to, to whatever it is on, on on inside number nine but then yeah. ben working in a lot of the world he's working in so i suppose you've had to crack in some way the the right balance of playing in that world, introducing people to that world, but not just only playing to the people who know what you're playing with. So how did you find that yeah. balance? Yeah, that is really interesting because that's something, a discussion we often have with writing the new number nines, because we'll talk about very glibly about things that we just assume everyone knows. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, it'll be a, a, a ventriloquist doll, you know, split personality thing. And we'll go, and, and then Steve will go, you know, loads of people might not know that. 
we're just dismissing it because it's like we can't do that that's just the one of those ones you know and yet there are whole swathes of people that when they enter into watching an inside number nine if you bumble into it thinking it's a comedy mm-hmm. <laughs> which it is meant to be you'll get the shock of your life i think because some of the more harder hitting ones and the ones that are we do when we try to do the horror we try to do it properly and then it could be very frightening for you because you might never be exposed to such things and therefore they'll really hit home in a way that we would never think they would because our threshold for gore or twists and turns and um tropes is just um is so um steeped in uh and in, in stuff that we've seen over and over again and, and we were very careful in how we think we might be repeating ourselves or, or taking something from something else and using it but then yes you've got to be aware of like there's a there's parodying it and and doing it for real and then also doing it where you think the doing of it isn't just the doing of it for the sake of doing it and those people that know will just think you're doing that bit from misery but it actually it's in its own right you've wrapped up and you've managed to make the drama um your own mm-hmm. and that's what's hard about going there with um particular genres i think horror films you would instantly very you could get it it could be dismissed very quickly as it's another slasher in the woods film but there is so much more to it yes it is but that it's how you wrap it up you know it's like there's not there you know there are only so many stories and you know that going in but it's how you tell that story there you'll never run out of stories actually but it's just and if but you may well find yourself using the hidden nuts and bolts to construct it in in a different way. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Thanks very much to Reese Shearsmith there talking about, among other things, how he's scared of robbers. <laughs> I think we all are, to be honest. Aren't we all? Uh, but let's crack on with some chat about In the Earth. So Ben Wheatley, um, last time we saw him was on smaller screens with Rebecca. Um, Eleanor, are you a fan of Ben Wheatley? I think Rebecca didn't go down so well overall. Is this him bouncing back, maybe? Um, I think I would probably describe myself as a fan of Ben Wheatley. Yeah, definitely, I have quite uh, high hopes for him, high expectations for him every time. He doesn't always meet them, but <laughs> I still believe. 
Um, yeah, I thought Rebecca was, uh, as, as I think most people agree, quite horrendous. Uh, but I do think In the Earth is kind of, if you like, uh, a return to form uh, because it, it goes back to, I think that's something quite um, sort of, uh, how do you say, um, I think Ben Wheatley can tap into sort of very like primal fears of people um, and especially when because these films are often um, stay very close to the body you know there's a lot of like sort of body horror and like anxieties that are very sort of foundational of people and in the earth because it is a pandemic film it was shot during the pandemic and there's literally four characters total pretty much um it sort of um goes back to all this sort of you know he's sort of like very bad down horror film um where the horror is there isn't all of the like you know background uh you know set design and, and like busy stuff that was in rebecca that i thought was quite distracting um and so instead it goes back to like the horror of like you know being in the woods being alone being with people you don't know and not knowing what their intentions are so it goes back i think in some ways to um his i think maybe his best film kill list um which i recommend checking out um but yeah mm. david what did you make of this are you a fan of Wheatley's more horror leanings. I I kind of I I I definitely am someone who has high high hopes for Ben Wheatley or every time and and yeah I, and I also they haven't always been met. Like some of some of his sort of smaller films that were kind of I think a lot of people found really exciting like A Field in England I wasn't I wasn't massively taken by. Uh I I thought Rebecca was yeah it, I, I'm not sure like what the, the what the the what the purpose of it is still and and what and and what his in, what the pur- what the kind of reason for his involvement was i i love kill list i love the i love sightseers um yeah high um um high rise as well i just didn't it didn't it didn't it didn't hit with me and so this was actually a really nice surprise um it felt like yeah him him returning back to his old his old haunts and doing something that that was very very him you know it was like after doing a couple of things where he's obviously having to kind of either give himself over to some source material or producers or expectations from chat like a streamer channel or or a distributor this this felt like i'm just a film for himself like a little kind of private doodle that that he where he could kind of do what he wanted and it just i think it just sort of shows how effective he can be when he sort of let let off the leash a bit and can and can just sort of work within his own little world um i mean the film the film is like i guess it sort of has um you know it is it, it's, it's it's quite a nice little kind of lead into something like resident evil because it is like a kind of pandemic thing about a virus and uh but then it kind of goes off in this kind of folk horror uh uh tangent as well that's all about um you know satan and shrooms and and, and you know so very it's, it kind of uh, it moves into this kind of psychedelic terrain which he kind of tends to do um but does so in a way that i think is kind of like experimental but not necessarily like alienatingly so like it's it i what i what i liked about this is that that's I think something like a field in England, like the second half of the film is like this pure kind of like strobing wig out 
where you kind of just have to be like, whoa, man, this is awesome. And, uh, and, and or, or not. Whereas like, I think this one, he has these kind of like, you know, psychedelic interludes that like work really well within the, within the story and, and actually kind of heightening the sense of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of fear. Um, I mean, I think that I loved, I loved, I think Joel Fry is very like, it, he's a perfect Ben Wheatley cast member in that he's kind of ostensibly a kind of comedy actor who's playing it straight. So you can, you, it's kind of, even though, you know, a lot of awful things happen to him, it's really funny. Like, you know, like <laughs> I, I, I found myself kind of laughing and wincing at the same time when he was, you know, being, being abused. Uh, and the main abuser is obviously uh, um, Reese Shearsmith, who I think this is maybe one of his like best film performances for, that, I, that I've seen. And um, I think whenever I see him in films, there's always this sort of stigma of, of, of League of Gentlemen and his kind of like grotesque character actor thing that he does, uh, where everything is kind of, you know, ratcheted up to, to, to 11 Whereas this, I think it's a more, it's definitely a more subtle actory role, and I think Ben Wheatley kind of draws something quite unique out of him, and 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 uh, and 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 really chilling. It's 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 got a kind of you know, without giving too much away, it's got it's definitely got a kind of Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibe to it. Um, and I also thought that yeah, um, uh, Elora Torsia, who plays Alma, who's the, the 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 female character in the film, who's who is kind of going into this forest with with uh, Joel Fry's Martin. Um, she, they they make mm. for a kind of yeah. She she's a great addition to the cast. Really 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 brilliant performance. And I think it's like really the performances that kind of lift this up to 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 actually something that's that could could have been on paper quite a kind of sort of low rent uh horror quickie it, it gives it, it gives it like there's so much more kind of gravitas and seriousness to it and chances to invest in the the characters and, and emotions as they say yeah as you say you think this might be a lockdown quickie you know is this ben weekly doing something like host but it still is mostly made by the, the people he works with time and again clint mansell doing the score and a very interesting score for him lots of uh analog synths and white noise as it goes more cosmic towards the end um but there, it is great whether it is by you know happenstance because of the pandemic he didn't have access to his usual cast of actors um those two leads are yeah wonderful uh wonderful new additions to the weekly stable i think so eleanor it very much is this sort of film of two halves maybe the creeping uh tension and uh, of the first half and then it does go somewhere towards the end we can't really spoil it because we can't really explain it because it's very much ben wheatley going psychedelic but do you did you go with it um, yes, I think I did actually. Yeah, I actually think maybe it didn't go far enough. I, I, I was um, kind of hoping it would go even more crazy and even more, you know, abstract and strange. And uh, but I did like that it actually went there. Um, I felt like it's weird because you don't really mm-hmm. see it coming, but then when it happens, you're like, of course, like where else could this go? Because all the characters have really strange dynamic between them. You know, they have such each one of them very different personalities. And they're always, you know, a bit of a mismatch. And so it just feels like a recipe for disaster. Like mm. there's there's just so much tension there. Um, and so then that it would sort of explode in that way almost feels like on some 
symbolic level sort of it makes sense you know so it doesn't feel like he just ended the film with this weird thing just to be like random you know he's not just being random like it, it does make sense you know thematically and um, and all of that and it's kind of a delight to see to see it progress from this to this because it actually works it actually makes sense and it doesn't feel random and and yeah as as david was saying i really think what elevates the film or elevates you know what makes it really interesting is the um, the the characters that are so well written and have such you know they have like quirks and like little annoying personalities especially the main lead character he's kind of pathetic and like funny and and just you're like why are we caring about this guy like what is going on but then you do eventually care because you're you're with him like sort of wondering what the hell is going on um and so then that he would explode at the end like that and that the film would sort of take over these people in that way sort of is kind of yeah beautiful and great but i did wish it went like far further even mm -hmm. yeah it is really a, a return to what people love about ben wheatley in many ways it is half kill list half a field in england the music is it's amazing how even when he's working on restricted budgets there is a ben wheatley character to his films you really do get a sense of the whole world of inspiration and influences that he's pulling from be it folk horror or bbc radiophonic workshop strange noises burbling in the background to texas chainsaw massacre let's uh, put some scores on this eleanor what scores would you give in the earth um, I would say anticipation free because I I've been burnt before. Uh, enjoyment four, and in retrospect, between three and four because I still think it's kind of slight, and I did hope it would go a bit further. Um, but uh, I didn't see it in a cinema, and I imagine the cinema it will be even more incredible. So I, I actually kind of want to watch it again because I saw it ages ago. Um, so yeah, I guess maybe. Three four four, mm -hmm. David. Yeah, I'd probably go for like four four three. Uh, like I have, it's that thing of like even though I have been burned by quite nastily by by Ben Wheatley in the past, um, I'm all I'm I you know I think I think he's inherently an interesting guy, and I want to I want to see what he's doing, and I and uh, and he he's definitely one of the kind of unique name British filmmakers out there and he's kind of earned that 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 mantle and you know he's going to do some weird stuff from time and time time and again and make some crazy decisions that we maybe don't understand that he does but that's fine um but and yeah um i think i think it's a it, i saw it in the cinema and it is a really good film to see in a cinema just to, because like the idea of being kind of you know that that sense of claustrophobia and being in the woods kind of links up quite nicely to the to the idea of like being in the cinema trapped the doors are closed the lights are out you know you're it, it's that it, you know it's kind of like an extension of that environment so yeah it feels like it's you know despite the fact that it is this pandemic film it's it feels that it has definitely been made for the a cin cinema consumption mm. yeah i'd be very keen to see it on a big screen i'm similar to you eleanor i saw it um uh, you know, not to moan too much about the lot of the film critic, but seeing a film like this at home mm -hmm. with your name emblazoned across it, uh, the, there's this one point where a character emerges from the from the from the distance in the forest and looked like he was peeking around <laughs> the L in my surname. Uh, so probably not one uh, to watch that at home unless you have a really good sound system. Uh, I, I'd give it four three three, but I imagine if I'd seen it in cinema, I might have enjoyed it a bit more. But David, if you're interested in what whatever Ben Wheatley does, you're probably going to be front row for the Meg too. <laughs> 
or the Tomb Raider movie or whatever he's up to next. I think whatever mm-hmm. comes next is going to be on a much bigger scale than this. I think yeah, Tomb, Ra- Tomb Raider's off, but but Meg Two is on. Well. We'll have to reconvene whenever that comes out, David, and see what you make of that. (laughs) So, listeners, that was In the Heights and In the Earth, both in cinemas this weekend. Let us know what you make of them at the usual channels. Up next, because another film in cinemas this weekend is Monster Hunter, the latest from Paul W.S. Anderson. We're going to go back to one of his his hits, (laughs) one of his biggest hits, Resident Evil Retribution. So convoluted plotting of the Resident Evil saga. We're dropping in three quarters of the way through at Resident Evil Retribution. Here's a bit of plot recap. The Umbrella Corporation's deadly T-virus is spreading across the globe, transforming ordinary people into legions of undead. Headed for extinction, the human race has just one hope. Alice, played by Mila Jovovich. She's on a mission, fighting her way through cities and across continents, all inside Umbrella's prime research facility. Old friends become new enemies as she battles to escape and discovers that everything that she believes may not even be true. So, David, you said if we're going to do a Resident Evil film, it has to be Retribution. Uh, why? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, one one Sunday a few years ago, uh, me and my wife got really ill at the same time, and uh, and so instead of instead of taking the usual medicinal routes to uh to wellness we decided that the the only cure for what ails us is to watch the entire resident evil saga and uh and so we we did that and uh and and it was a very very enjoyable weekend and it definitely kind of um alleviated our suffering um it's it's so and and i think we we back then we both agreed that the retribution which is like number five in the series i think it was that was the highlight it, i mean it's kind of it's like i think people a lot of people dismiss the 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 uh the resident evil films i remember because i because I, I sort of started in in film criticism in kind of the early early noughts so i was kind of watching you know as, as these films were kind of coming out you know they were sort of coming out on my sort of weekly watch of 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 reviewing and you know it was it almost became like a bit of a joke a bit a bit like some of the saw sequels they would always get you know they would get one star across the board everyone would just be like oh god another boring resident evil it's very kind of self serious and it's very convoluted and it's all all to do with these video games that we don't really understand and you know it's it's it all looks slightly cheap because it's been made in europe and not hollywood and 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 you know i i think i dismissed them then myself but then they i think that they were sort of um re- like kind of appropriated and, and and given this sort of second lease of life and cri- like i think some sort of quite highbrow critics started to take them very seriously and and in particular the work of paul ws anderson as a kind of auteur and and having this kind of seam of uh, of interest that kind of runs through through his through his work and particularly in the way he um choreographs action scenes and rights and uh and these kind of themes that he has and this kind of you know it's almost like um i think i think it's a kind of uh i think he's often described as like a post-narrative mainstream filmmaker in that like the the, the narratives don't like, don't make any sense and he but he's aware of that so like uh, and he, he he's he's just kind of making these kind of almost montage films uh 
like kind of Soviet early Soviet movies <laughs> where you just get these kind of action action sequence stitched together in quite sort of uh, um, super like sort of uh, contrived ways. And it's, and, and there's something quite fun about that. And yeah, Re- Resident Evil, sorry, I'll, I'm going to get, I'm cutting to the cha- the end here. So Resident Evil five is one which in which uh, Mila Jovovich is Alice um, as so often in the series, she wakes up on the floor of a, a kind of research lab in a sort of slate state of undress. And uh, so she, she will then, as, so, as she so often d- does, put on some like latex fetish wear and, uh, and pick up two massive guns and then we'll go and fight <laughs> zombies for the rest of the film. Uh, and and so and with this one we've got the, this really intriguing setup of like she's in the umbrella corporation research facility and they have all these kind of it's like the hollow deck off of off of star trek where they have these artificial landscapes that have been made up so they can do tests and see how the uh the virus will spread in like tokyo and russia and moscow and london new york and all various sort of cities and she ends up basically being in those test simulations and having to fight off the zombie hoarders as they're being created. And it's this really fascinating kind of almost like meta text about like, you know, cinema, artificial worlds, you know, it's very, it's very, it's, I think on one side, it's this sort of kick-ass action film. On the other, it is like this, this like, it's almost a sort of like deconstruction of special effects of uh, of CGI backdrops of like implanting people into into artificial worlds, which has basically become the norm for most mainstream cinema now. So it's almost like the kind of ironic uh, commentary on that style of filmmaking. So that's that's why I think I like this film. Sorry, that was very long. I'm going to let Elena. No, no, in there. David, I'm I'm so glad that you uh, you did that because you very sort of comprehensively put out the vision of of Paul W. Anderson's work that I wish I could see. I I enjoy reading that criticism more than I do watching the films. Um, This film for me, I mean, I I thought it was a bit more like a crystal maze almost uh, where she's going through all these different zones. (laughs) And, you know, you do have a point that is like, you know, there are lines where, you know, the, the, the holodeck type simulations only go so far a couple of blocks at most. And it is commenting on the artificiality of the worlds we see on screen. Post narrative filmmaker to me just sounds like a euphemism for the characters are thinly drawn. The story makes no sense and there's no reason for us to be watching this. (laughs) But I guess if you're along for the ride, you know, all power to you if you're in Enjoying this, Eleni, are you are you fully a fully paid up member of the vulgar tourist school of Paul W. Anderson? Uh, no, actually, I'm not. I'm more uh, on your team. I think I I I did not. Uh, I am very aware of all those uh, theories of um, how Paul W. Anderson is this author and very aware of what he's doing and stuff. And I can see so some of that. I mean, I, I can't. I don't think I can deny that he he's very good at doing what he does. Uh, but I just mm. don't think there's that much to it, and I don't think that he is deconstructing cinema or the tropes of the action film so much as making a very sort of like actually quite pleasurably, you know, simple, straightforward uh, action films that you can watch if you're very ill, for example, <laughs> you can enjoy them. <laughs> but also, I just think that they're very, they're like. The act, I was watching when I was watching Retribution yesterday. I was thinking, not in a bad way at all, that it actually does feel like one of those big, um, you know, blockbusters, actually made for children. 
as opposed to even if you watch, you know, the Fast and Furious films or any other big film like this, you know, obviously enjoy, uh, children can enjoy them. But this one actually felt like it was the, the logic of it and the simplicity of the story. Like, you know, there's barely any, you know, there's not much like wit or anything to it, I think, which is not a problem. There's no like sarcasm, you know. It actually did feel like it was made sort of with like a sort of childlike simplicity, which is very soothing and very enjoyable and very, you know, sort of earnest and genuine, which I like. Um, but I did, I just, I feel like I would enjoy more the sort of everything you were saying, David, about how it's, you know, post story and post, you know, all of that. If I actually, if it was actually like slightly more, um, if there was more like sort of euphoria to it, and it, to me it feels more like slightly, you, you know, dead and like expected. Even the action scenes, um, I just felt they were like, they were not that impressive. Um, I like the scenes where it was one-on-one -on -one combat. I think these are absolutely amazing and really good. Um, but otherwise, just everything about it, I just thought was like, oh, this happens and then this happens. And I wasn't really, you know, for, there for the ride like I wasn't really enjoying that much it just stuff happened in front of my eyes and <laughs> I didn't really connect to it that well well I mean you know I don't I think the question is like and and I think that it's been put to him in interviews where that where, where you've had interviews with him where people are asking him like oh you're this like sage of of action cinema and you're actually an intellectual aren't you and and I, and I and he's he very much kind of denies all that so like I think when when I talk about all the sort of post-narrative cinema and all that and 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 deconstruction and stuff like that I think it's very much like being imposed onto the text like you know whether he's whether it's intentional or not is kind of by the by but like um but I think one, one of the int one interesting thing about this this series is is that it's like that they are like massively popular, like and like across like six films. So like I think the yeah the the final chapter is the one after this one. Like the final chapter ended up making like the like three hundred million dollars, um, and that and that's the most and that's the big it's the biggest hit of the series. So it's like as the series has gone on, like this the the fifth sequel is the one that has been the most successful. And it, you know, it's weird that they then chose to sort of end. You know, obviously it's called the final chapter, so they had to end it there. But they are doing. There's been a re, a complete reboot uh, that's, that's happened, and there's another Resident Evil film coming out this year called Welcome to Raccoon City, which is kind of, I believe, more of a kind of close close adaptation of the of the first computer game. So, um, so yeah, um, it, it's it, it. I mean, you know, it's one of the biggest like horror franchises ever. Which is which is which kind of head spinning in a way in that it's so largely dismissed as kind of junk by by so many, um, yourselves included. <laughs> there's also a Netflix series on the way as well, so there's clearly such value seen in the Resident Evil name and franchise association, even though the games themselves aren't really mirrored in these films. The films have spun, spun off in their own direction very quickly. Some characters and some like design and sort of costumes of the characters do reflect the games, but the games have very much ploughed their own furrow. Um, and the, the main character, Alice, is the, who played by Mila Jovovich, is not, is like been made up. She's like one of them. She doesn't feature in any of the games. But uh, David, you're playing the latest Resident Evil, right? Yeah. Like, so do you think the film, which would you prefer, the films or the games? 
I, I mean, I think that's the thing. I think they're completely different. I mean, they're like almost in t- whole, com- you know, ve- completely different. I mean, like the game is like very first person, very interior, very kind of experiential. Whereas the film is is like rock and sockem. Let's 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 blow up. You know, blow up stuff is more kind of actiony. Uh, so so yeah, it's. It, I think that it's been. I think the films have maybe been successful in that they haven't cleave too closely to the games because i mean you know the games are the games and people Mm -hmm. like them for what they are so like creating this completely different world for cinema is probably a was probably a wise move and also they they start that first film came out you know quite early there had only been a handful of the games in the franchise released then so and gaming was still seen as quite a a niche bit of entertainment back in the late 90s or just on the cusp of the 2000s so i suppose they did want to have more of a more of its own identity um i i do think the resident Evil franchise particularly in the last two games the new one village and then the the resident Evil biohazard reboot from a few years ago are you know top tier horror games in a sort of way that is immediately very compelling and terrifying but also has its moments of just wild abandon um which i don't think we actually have that much in horror cinema at the moment with this sort of fight between the big big flashy franchises and the um the elevated horror resident evil the games managed to do something that is both specifically very terrifying but also deliver some quite self-aware humor at times too um eleanor i know you're a gamer but you're not really a horror gamer are you or are you um i don't even know if i'm a gamer i mean i play like a couple there are like a few games that i just play like obsessively but i I know that the the trend is to you know like story games and like world games where you just walk around and stuff and like I haven't done this at all like so I, I wouldn't I don't think I would really describe myself as a gamer I'm like an old school gamer where I just play Doom and uh, I I play I started playing Mortal Kombat before I watched the, the new film uh, but I did actually try playing Resident Evil not this game the the previous one Biohazard. But it was too scary. <laughs> I just, I just can't. Uh, I can handle horror films, but horror games, I just find them like just absolutely terrifying. Like even if nothing is happening, you know, you walk around and once in a while there's a creature that like puts its arm through the wall where you are. Like I just can't. I just can't do it. It's too much. Uh, but maybe one day, I feel like there's like a whole. I think I, I would probably, if I, you know, force myself a little bit, I think I would probably come to enjoy these games very much. Uh, but I'm not there yet. But you know. Uh, check check up with me later maybe one day i'll be a, a real gamer yeah report back if you get to that stage and already you've suggested <laughs> maybe a few more video game related film clubs i know in the past we did super mario brothers maybe we should should do doom we could do mortal kombat another uh, face-off with paul ws anderson that's my favorite of his films anyway but mm-hmm. i think that's all we have time for this week eleanor lazich david jenkins thank you so much for joining me listeners uh, let us know what you think of paul ws anderson's oeuvre as well as either of the new releases we discussed this week at the usual channels that's at lw lies on twitter or via email at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com Next week, we're back with the big franchises, Fast and Furious 9, as well as a bit of a smaller scale film, Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci in Supernova. And in Film Club, since it's getting a big nationwide re-release by the BFI, we're going back to Robert Altman's Nashville. We'll see you then.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.